Lord, we ask again for your presence in the reading of your word, in the attempt to hold it in our hearts and to somehow be remade by it. I do ask for the life that you promised in your word to us this morning as we read and think and open our hearts. And I'm asking, Lord, as, a, as a, almost a reward to those who will open their hearts, who will humbly come before you, that you would exceed their deepest hopes this morning with the gift of your presence. Change us this morning, Lord, somehow, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm not sure if I pick the hardest, weirdest passages or if they just give them to me, uh, but nevertheless, here we are. This is uh, the beginning of Luke 13, and so I'm gonna, if you don't already have one of these, maybe you could just uh, open up the app on your phone or whatever, Luke 13, 1 through 9, and I'm going to give you about three minutes to just quietly read this on your own, and then we'll... We'll do like we do, and we'll have a small group discussion, and then we'll have a larger group discussion. So take, take a second and read it for yourself. Okay. Uh, let's hear some of your thoughts, comments, or questions. Okay. Back row. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a couple things that, that I kind of... Saw, I don't know how related they are, but number one, there's that juxtaposition of God's judgment and his grace. Sort of like he's, he's saying, hey, bad things are going to happen, but, you know, there's an opportunity for you to turn. Mm-hmm. And then there's that idea, first he mentions Galileans, which is, you know, Galilee of the Gentiles, sort of like the outsiders. And then he mentions in Jerusalem this tower, which Jerusalem was the city of David, you know, it was God's mm-hmm. people's city. And then when the, the, the parable he talks about my vineyard, which is like uh, in the Old Testament, that's always a picture for God's people. Right. And so there's this idea that like, I, I don't exactly remember where the passage is, but it says something that God's judgment will come to the house of God first, mm-hmm. but apparently so will grace. Mm-hmm. So will the, the opportunity to repent. Yeah, that's good. There is a lot of, um, the, the vineyard image is definitely an, uh, an obvious um, shadow of, Israel, but, um, you know, Galilee is also Jewish, so Jesus was a Galilean. All his disciples were Galileans, Uh, and then, of course, you make the observation about going a little deeper into Jerusalem, the Sea of Jerusalem, but it does seem like it's still this sort of internal dialogue, and yet it's a harsh word about judgment, too, grace and judgment. That's a great observation, and I I actually want to talk more about that, but... Over here, maybe? Yeah. So he keeps saying over and over again, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. I mean, at first it kind of feels like um, bad things happen to good people, right? Like, okay, these these people got killed, but you're not any worse than them. You know, things happen. Um, And the same thing with, like, the tower. The tower fell, you know, sorry for those people, but, you know, people die. 
but he, after each one of those things, he says, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Like, is he blaming them for having yeah. a tower fall on them? No, it's a good question. So I think it's actually the opposite. It's interesting how our, our cultural perception of disaster has really changed. So in, in the first century world, in the ancient world, if a disaster happened to you, the assumption that people would make is that you're bad. You actually did something bad. So to talk about people for whom a tragedy has befallen them is to almost say, they, you know, obviously they were not right with God because look what happened to them. Uh, the question when Jesus is, uh, when, when his disciples bring a blind man to him, say, who sinned? this man or his parents. In other words, there's no chance that uh, because this, this calamity is on him, some, someone did something. Someone sinned and deserved it. That was their assumption. And that's part of what Jesus is debunking here, part of what he's denying. But I actually think it's interesting to say the opposite too. I think he also would deny that, to say that if a tragedy befalls somebody, they didn't do anything to deserve it. I, I, I'm not sure, but I think he's kind of saying, you're just missing the point. I think there's something behind it that he wants to get to, which has to do with sin itself or repentance somehow. What else? Over here. I'm kind of, I'm kind of uh, disturbed by the fact that the parable seems to end and we don't know the end result. <laughs> it's like... If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, cut it down. What happens? What, what happens with it next year? Well, not, not only that, we don't even know what the landowner decides, yeah. actually. We, the parable stops even short of the response of the landowner to say to the servant, okay, I'll give it another year. All we know is that the case has been made, that an advocate has spoken for the, the barren, uh, sterile tree. And I don't know. I guess it, well, okay, so if you leave a story with a cliffhanger like that, it's meant to sort of ask the question, what does happen to the tree? Maybe, maybe the answer is up to you, uh, if you are the tree, I suppose. What else? Hi, okay. I have a question. Yeah. So um, there's like the command at the end, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, mm -hmm. and I'll dig around and fertilize it. And I guess I just have a question, like, what's the significance of, like, one more year compared to, like, where the tree's at now? Like, it just seems so arbitrary to, like, give it more time when it's already not bearing fruit. So, like, is there significance in, like, actually Why aren't you a tough one? Year? Wow. <laughs> Jeez, don't, don't be a fig tree in your orchard. <laughs> so, I don't know much about this sort of thing, but my understanding is that... Um, you know, when you when you plant a fruit tree, uh, you would you wouldn't expect it to bear fruit immediately. You would expect it to have a certain amount of time before it begins to bear fruit. So you wait that amount of time, and then if it still isn't bearing fruit, then you say, okay, this tree is no good. Cut it down, start over. That soil is being taken up. It needs to have a more fruitful tree. And so there is some uh, maybe interpretation or debate of how long you should wait. So this man has waited three years, and there's still no fruit. But it wouldn't, it wouldn't have borne fruit the first year. So I, uh, several years ago, I gave Monica a, a mango tree. She loves mangoes. That's like her favorite fruit. It's the fruit of love. Uh, so I gave her a mango tree, 
And it was a pretty mature mango tree, so I thought this thing is going to give us mangoes like in the first year. And of course, it's going to bear fruit once a year. That's why the yearly, the question is, okay, it's time for it. All our trees are bearing fruit. This one isn't. Uh, And it took a few years, didn't it? It took a few years for that tree to give us its first mango. And it was frustrating. And it was kind of like, did I buy a a dud? You know, did I buy a bad tree? I thought that maybe I did because I don't know anything about it. And then one year... Boom, all these mangoes. Not just one, like it was full of mangoes. Just started popping up. So what else? Maybe one more. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's a, we don't have that many mics, Nishu. <laughs> he broke it. He literally broke it. No. He, she said fix it. <laughs> Uh, we could we could just go ahead and replace that question one over here. It's coming out of Nishu's pay, <laughs> which he does not receive. <laughs> Sorry. So, oh, here we go, Joe's. Oh, Chandra's mad at you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So I don't know. I'm just trying to like sort of find a connection between the story of the people randomly dying and the fig tree getting fertilizer, and I'm wondering like you know. When, they, when they're talking about the tree, it's like, well, let's give it one more year, and let's even give it this extra help. Like, we'll give it fertilizer, we'll, like, we'll, like, really focus on this tree. And if it's still not bearing fruit, then, like, there's really no hope. And I'm wondering if, like, in the first part, if, like, Jesus saying, like, unless you repent, you two will all perish, is that, like, him being the fertilizer? You know, it's like, come on, like, I'm really going to, like, lay it out here for you unless you repent. Like, you're going to perish. It's like that one more chance and, like, even some extra yeah. than what they've been given before. I don't know. Yeah, any, the prophet's call always comes with time. It always comes with some time. There is a time between when you hear the call to change and when you are judged on whether or not you accept that call or not. There is always time. That's a part of the grace. So even though it can feel like a harsh word, the fact that you have time, that, that you've heard the word, and it's not the day of your judgment, you know. Uh, it, is, it is gracious to give you time. And I think that is a connection between these two, the two parts of the story. Was there one more person over here? Yeah, okay. Joe's is coming. Okay. Hi. Um. I just automatically got the analogy that we are the tree, Mm -hmm. that we grow in time and we grow in the Lord. Mm -hmm. And if we um, don't accept our faith, we don't see it as faith, then we are still given more and more time to Mm -hmm. accept it. And the same thing in growing in love and growing in um, the repenting to me is the making amends. And people might, you know, like I might hold a grudge against somebody for several years, but I still have an opportunity to change that into acceptance. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I need to bear fruit so yeah. that uh, it looks like I've had growth in my life or I feel like I've had growth. Mm-hmm. And the thing about being cut down, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I <laughs> guess you always get the second chance. You know, you always get the second chance of maybe if you don't like that path or that journey or that tree, mm-hmm. you start in a different direction. So I could I could uh, see it as being that type of analogy. Well, and, 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 and there, is a, there is a sort of, I agree, and that's great. Thank you for that. Uh, contribution. And yet there is this 
hard word here about mortality, that you will die, and I will die, and our chances will run out. That there will be some moment when we have, our life comes to account. And that's actually where the text begins. It begins with this sort of morbid uh, awareness of our own mortality. I mean, if it may not be completely clear, and, and, and these two historical references here, they only occur here in all of antiquity. So we have no other cross-reference for these two news points, these two you know, events or happenings in the time of these people. And apparently, one is, maybe there were some Galileans who had come to the temple to make sacrifice, and they were murdered. They were murdered by uh, Pilate or his men. And somehow their blood mixed with the blood they had come to make sacrifice, and that's a great sort of uh, sacrilege and scandal, and it would have been the buzz of the time. And so these people who are around Jesus come and tell him this story, this rumor. They're sharing with him, did you hear? You know, have you heard? Did you hear about those people and their horrible downfall? Um, and, and, and Jesus is responding not just to the piece of news, but he's responding to what is going on inside their hearts as they share it. So, I mean, have you ever gossiped? Has anyone here ever gossiped? Do you know someone who's gossiped? Because, <laughs> of course, you would never do such a thing. I also find that Christians have a hard time discerning what gossip is. Uh, I think that they, they think like a, like a prayer request is not gossip. Like as long as you can form it in the, if you can, if you can encase it in the form of a prayer request... It's not gossip. Did you hear about so-and-so? We really need to pray for so-and-so and their situation. What's their situation? Oh, you didn't know their situation. <laughs> Let me tell you. I almost have never ever, I mean, I've been a Christian for a long time and I've been around Christians a long time. I've almost never ever seen someone repent of gossip. Never. Nobody thinks they do it. Nobody thinks they do it. They think other people do it. But even that's a little ambiguous. It's not always clear. It's, not, it's hard to know. In fact, our world is gossip. What, what, what we consider news is really gossip half the time. It's, it's, it's all blended up together. This is how we learn about the world, and we love it. We love it. <laughs> we delight in it, hearing these stories about people and their bad things that happened to them. I'm just wondering, I'm wondering, guys, I read this, I'm wondering, what would it have been like to bring a piece of gossip to Jesus? What does he say in response to it? Jesus, did you hear? Like, you just lose yourself for a second. You forget who you're talking to. You forget where you are. I don't know. And like, did you hear about those Galileans? Oh, my gosh. And what you mean is, what you mean is, weren't they terrible? Didn't they deserve it? Which, by the way, is part of what we're doing when we're gossiping about someone, when we're talking about some calamity that befalls another person. We take a sort of sick pleasure in the fact that it didn't happen to us. There's some sort of superiority thing that's happening when we're gossiping about another person or about some situation or about some, someone's downfall. 
Well, if you were ever curious what would happen if you would gossip to Jesus, this is what happens. He says in response, did you hear about that big church pastor who had a moral failing? Or did you hear about that business leader who got wrapped up in that scandal? Or did you hear about that political leader that got caught cheating? Did you hear? This is what Jesus would say in response. Oh, I'm sorry. Do you think you're better than those people? This is his response. Do you think? He's challenging what's behind even bringing it up. Do you think these Galileans were worse, worse sinners than all other Galileans? Now, understand, he, part of what he's doing is he's looking at himself. He's looking at, he can't refer to himself maybe in, with integrity because he is not a sinner, but he wants to. I feel like if he were us and we were in this situation, he would say himself too. But he wants to say Galileans, all the Galileans. He's a Galilean. Look at, look at, look at my crew here. We're all Galileans. Do you think, wait, I'm sorry. Oh, you think... You're better than those people. You think their sins are somehow worse than your sins. Oh, that's what you're doing. And his response is, no, no, it isn't. And guess what? You better repent or you're going to perish. That's how Jesus responds to gossip. Repent or perish. That's what he says. You repent or perish. And he is addressing this inner dialogue of judgment. Or rather, let's, let's call it the judgment of comparison. Comparison. And I'm going to come for that this morning. Comparison. You know, my sins are not as bad as their sins. Look what happened to them. It's proof. And guys, we, we, we live in a time when we revel in the felling of giants. We love to build up ordinary human beings into celebrity godlike figures who receive our adulation, our attention, our affection, so that when they fail, and they always do, so that when they fail and when they eventually break our trust, we can, with even more fervor, bring them low and watch them burn. It is the sport of the American public discourse to lift people up way beyond what an ordinary person should be so that when they fail, and they will, because they're human beings just like us, so when they fail our trust, when they succumb to our scrutiny, we can delight in their felling. We are no different This is that double-edged sword. We revel in the rise so we can eventually revel in the fall, so we can feel good about ourselves as we enjoy somebody who seemed like they were better than us become below us. But Jesus' response, I think, even to us in our time, in our social discourse, is do you think that they are worse sinners than you? They aren't. When we see someone judged or fall or rightly even uh, corrected, uh, the temptation is to feel superior, and this is a part of what Jesus is confronting. 
you don't get to feel superior. You are not superior. And to hear Jesus say, what about you? We have to somehow, I think we're being offered a choice this morning to reject the sin of comparison and embrace the virtue of repentance and change. Repent or perish. Change or die. But you can't really, look, if if you're going to keep up with comparison and superiority, you don't get to bear the fruit of the kingdom. But we don't like change. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of use as a synonym for repentance this concept of change. We're not fond of change. Human beings are not fond of change. There's a couple of reasons. If you study human psychology, you can see that in general, human beings are what's called loss averse. That means they don't like to lose things they already have, even if it means gaining something greater. We are very attached to the things we have, including our behaviors, including our ideas, including our lifestyle and our patterns. Even if, and this is what's crazy, even if those things are destructive, they're ours. And we are fond of them, and we don't like to give them up. Uh, this, there's an interesting example of this would be in our, the way we do, at least the way we do in the United States, uh, driving, penalizing people who make mistakes in their driving. So there's like a world's, there's like a point system that we use to penalize you if you do, if some infraction Uh, when you drive. But the rest of the world understands something we don't quite get or we haven't sort of figured out, which is because other driving point systems are more effective than our driving point system because other people in other countries understand loss aversion. So follow me. Here's the thing. In our country, if you have a driving infraction, what happens? You get points on your license. You get points on your license. But the problem is Americans love to get things. I, I, was, I was proud to have 12 points on my license. I told people, I have 12 points on my license. I'm one, one ticket away. This was, I was very young. This was a long time ago. But, but as a young teenage driver, I was like, 12 points, check me out. How many do you have? I have nine. <laughs> I have 12, you know. It doesn't work for us because we like gaining things, even if gaining something is bad. Here's what they do in Italy. What they do in Italy is they give you a set of points. You have 20 points. And if you, if you get a ticket or have some kind of driving infraction, guess what they do? They take your points away. And nobody wants that. Don't take my points away. Those are my points. And no one's proud to lose their points. Nobody wants to lose their points. It's a more effective system because it taps into that deeper thing. There's something called, the social scientists call endowment theory. I think this is fascinating. Endowment theory goes something like this. Look, I have this cup. It's a lovely cup. It works. It has no holes in it. I'd l- I want to sell it. How much, you know, how much will you pay for it? And maybe you say, look, I'm not really in the market for a cup, but I don't know. Uh, I say, will you give me 50 cents? You're like, no, that's good. Maybe you're thirsty and you want something. So you say, I'll give you a quarter for it. So I say, okay, it's a quarter. I sell it to you for a quarter. That's what you think it's worth, right? The second you get it, this is what the research shows. The second you get that cup and now it's yours, somebody comes over to you and says, I'll give you a quarter for that cup. Guess what people say? No, No, it's it's worth more than a quarter. (laughs) How is it worth more than a quarter? You just paid a quarter for it. No, it's mine. And you see it as having value. This is the problem that people have when they want to sell their used things. They want to sell their used trunk or their used birdcage or their used 
tires or something. Like, no, that was a good birdcage. And that had Tweety in it for years. It's, it's so good. It's a, the person wants to give you $5 for you. He's like, what? How dare you? It's Tweety's home. This is called the endowment effect. It's when we, we give more value, a higher level of value. We overestimate the value of things because they're ours because they're ours. And the second a thing becomes ours, we overvalue it. We immediately overvalue it. And when it's yours, we typically undervalue it, or whatever the market determines is actually its value is what its value is. But the second we own it, the second it's ours, it becomes worth more to us and in our eyes. We love what we already have. We overvalue. We prefer what we already have. Now, this is, this is the important thing to... to integrate into your mind this morning. We love what we already have. We overvalue what we already have, even if it's self-destructive. Even if it's killing us. And it's not just things. It's relationships, vices, behaviors, thought patterns. Guys, even lies. We hold on to our lies because they're ours. It's how we cope. And we're more afraid of losing them. What will life be without them? How will I understand myself or my world if I let go of this behavior, if I let go of this way I see the world? And so we compare each other. We compare our dysfunctions, our self-destructiveness. We compare our sin with others because we need to know what these people wanted to know. We're better than them, right? I mean, yeah, my lies are my lies, and my, my, my sins are my sins, and my, my bad behavior is my bad behavior, but it's not as bad as other people. This is why we do that. The, the reason why we compare our sins to other people is so that we can make an argument to ourselves for keeping them because we're so afraid to lose them. It is our loss aversion. It is our endowment uh, effect where we want, we want to hold them so bad so that all we can do is compare ourselves to others so that we can say, well, yeah, but mine aren't as bad as theirs, so see, it's okay to keep them. My materialism is not as bad as that person's materialism. You know, my, my, my foul mouth is not as bad as that person's foul mouth. You know, my bad behavior is not as bad as their bad behavior. My addictions are not as bad as their addictions. And as long as we can do that, you see, as long as we can put ourselves in some sort of continuum of badness, uh, we, can, we can excuse ourselves from facing who we are and from facing the need to change and from facing the fact that we have barren, sterile lives that aren't bearing any fruit. Comparison becomes the enemy of fruit bearing because comparison lets us off the hook. And that's exactly what Jesus can't let us do. He loves us too much. And so when he hears us comparing, all he has to do is say, guys, think about your own sin. Forget about theirs. You have something in your life surely you must repent from. And if you don't, you'll perish. It seems like a harsh word, but actually it's a loving word because there is this thing called eternity. And this is, what, this is what a prophet understands. This is what God understands. This is what Jesus understands, that he's not, he's not talking to temporal beings. He's talking to eternal beings, of which this, this life is a breath.
And I think Jesus is making a contrast here. You can live a life of comparison or you can bear fruit for the kingdom that comes through constant, humble change. But you cannot do both at the same time. You must let go of this tactic, this strategy of comparison for dealing with your sin in order to face it let it go and somehow be changed by Him. Some of you heard me talk recently. I, I'm very, um, I don't know, troubled by what, what has to be considered one of the greatest mental health crises, certainly in your lifetime, if not the last 500 years. I, I think that we are facing in what is called the I generation, I'm, I'm very um, indebted to the, the research of a uh, San Diego State researcher named uh, Gene Twenge, who writes quite a bit about this generation, this generation. Uh, I want to say bet born between 1998 and 2012, that generation, that she's just beginning, to, we're just beginning to look at the effects and what has to be considered a, a, a massive mental health crisis. Now what's interesting about these kids, our kids, um, is that in many ways they seem healthier. In other words, there are, there are data points that are very encouraging. For instance, there's lower rates of teen pregnancy, there's lower rates of drinking and alcohol abuse, there's lower rates of, uh, uh, you know, risky uh, behaviors. Uh, than there was in the past than, say, uh, kids in the early 90s or late 80s. So there's reasons to think, okay, what's going on? Uh, she talks about, in particular, the allure of independence, that it somehow has not hit this generation. This current generation of kids has, no, has very little interest in being independent. I, I, and one example of this would be getting their driver's licenses. When we turned 16, we went and got our driver's license that day because we wanted to be free. We wanted to be out of there, get out of our parents' houses. These kids today are, are waiting an average of two years longer to get their driver's license. It's very common for, for someone to be 18, 19 years old, still not have their driver's license because their parents drive them everywhere. So what ends up happening is, okay, yeah, there's less going out. They actually go out. Actually, the research shows that ki a 15-year-old kid goes out as much uh, as a 13-year-old kid went out 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Uh, an 18-year-old goes out as much as a 15-year-old went out. We just, they're just staying home. They're staying home. And yet, so, this shift is so stunning that uh, we have to ask ourselves, you know, is this better? And actually, what, what you see in the data, in the research, is right around 2012, there's a time, right around 2012, rates of depression, suicide, suicidal thoughts, self-harm, spike. They, go, they have this massive increase, this dangerous curve that we're on now, starting right around 2012 which she argues is the exact same time that in America the use of smartphones exceeded 50%. It 
It's when everyone started having one of these things in their hands. What's going on? So on the one hand, our kids are not out there getting drunk. They're not out there getting pregnant anymore. They're on the couch. They're on the couch. They're not driving, getting in accidents. They're, they're sitting on the couch. And so we're lulled into this sense of security and safety because parents are parenting differently. So now parents are looking over their kids and go, good thing they're not out there getting in trouble. They're just laying on the couch all day with their phone in their hand. And we think they're safe. We think they're okay. But the truth is, those kids that sit on the couch every day are in worse peril than, they, than any generation ever has been because of the sin of comparison. Because all they're doing all day is comparing their lives to each other. And it's unraveling their minds. They have no discernible reason to destroy themselves, to kill themselves, to sink into the depths of clinical depression, and yet that is where they're going, and we have to ask ourselves, why? It is not an exaggeration to describe this generation as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. And much of this deterioration can be traced to their phones. because we have imprisoned them in a world of comparison, of assessing themselves, not in reference to something absolute or even something they feel. I'm happy, for instance. They, they, this generation is reporting the lowest rates of happiness, saying, I'm not happy with who I am, with my life, because of this constant comparisons destroying their mental health cannibalizing any happiness they dare to feel. And we think they're safe, but they're not. And what is, what is the response? What should the response be from parents? I, I'm no Luddite. I'm not here to come after technology. I'm not, I, that's, I just think that's a, a mistake. I think, I think that's shadow boxing. It's not the issue. Technology is not the problem. This is the problem. This is what Jesus would say. Jesus' response to that reality and this reality of comparison, if we put them side by side, his response is this, get up and bear fruit. Get off the couch and bear fruit. Get from behind your screen and bear fruit. We used to always be afraid of kids and all their TV time, seven hours a day, nine hours a day. That's what we, and then there was this fear of video games. Listen, now we're talking about 12 to 16 hours a day screen time. The new word is screen time. And, and, and kids and some of us barely have moments of non-screen time. And this is becoming something that is very, very destructive to us. And I'm telling you the reason why is because of this sin of comparison. It's drawing us into this toxic environment where we cannot win psychologically. And his response is, get up, look at your life, and bear fruit. Go bear fruit. And liking someone's post is not bearing fruit. Commenting on someone's pro post is not bearing fruit. Being active in social media, even that word is an is a, is a oxymoron. Being active in social media is not bearing fruit. That is a sterile barren tree. 
if all you do in this life is, is, is work and, ex, and, and engage the world in this vir virtual reality, that is not reality. And we have to come to terms with that. Jesus would say, get up. Listen, this is what he would say. Get up, bear fruit. Your time is running out. Your time is running out. And I'm, you know, like Irby, I'm, I'm looking for this connection between these two movements. I'm really struggling this weekend with these two, these two Jesuses that appear in this text. You know, this morality word about mortality and repent and change and, or perish. And then this fruitfulness word, considering eternity in one breath you're going to die, and you're going to face God, and you're going to live as an eternal being. How, make sense of that in your life. And then the next breath, this temporal word about bearing fruit right now in your life, that your tree has a certain lifespan, and then it's felled. What will you do with that lifespan? This eternal and this temporal juxtaposition. And then I can't help but see uh, uh, the impression of Jesus on this servant in the vineyard. The man who comes and said, that's my tree. And then this other man who is the servant of the vineyard who is, doesn't own the tree. And there's some sort of triune uh, uh, reality being displayed in this very small parable as the father, as the father says of your tree, it isn't bearing fruit. Maybe I should cut it down. And the servant of the vineyard stepping in as an advocate so on the one hand, you have Jesus being this, 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 this avenging judge in the first part of the text, and in the second, you have him being this advocate. He is avenger and he is advocate, and he steps in for you and for me, and he says, you know what, give it one more year. Give it one more year. I'll tend it. I'll dig the soil. I'll fertilize it. I will pour into it. You can't help but feel the the impression of the cross on this text. I'll die. I will nourish, I will fertilize this soil with my own blood so that it can have one more year. Please, Father, what, what, what is he saying when he, when he hangs on a cross and says, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing? What is he doing? He's interceding, he's advocating for the Father in his holiness and his perfection who has his well within his rights to bring his wrath on us. But he, but he says, don't do it yet, Dad. Hold off. Maybe there's, there's fruit left in this tree. Give it a year. I'll help. I'll, I'll intercede. I'll be there. I'll, I'll try to bring life out of it. And I, I, can't, I need to make sense of these two impressions of Jesus here. But somehow still hear this call to change. If your life is not bearing fruit, well, more likely there are parts of your life, l listen carefully to me, there are parts of your life that are not bearing fruit for the kingdom. The fruit of righteousness or Christ-likeness or disciples. We need to repent. We need to change those areas of fruitlessness and sterility. We have been given a reprieve Time. We've been given time. And so there is this strange juxtaposition between the repent and perish and the give them one more year. 
between Jesus the judge and Jesus the advocate. And so I, I, I do what I need to do. This is, this is what uh, Roger Martin calls generative reasoning or what's also been, been, been called uh, uh, abductive reasoning, which is something different from inductive or deductive reasoning. There actually is a third way, modal way of reasoning, which is you take two opposing ideas and you try to say, what is the most likely solution for why they are together? experimentation. It's where we get invention from. It's where we get, it's where we get all our sort of leaps of the mind, our breakthroughs. And so I'm asking, okay, Lord, give me some abductive reasoning here. What's going on? How are you both these things to us at the same time? And this is the question that haunted my mind as I did that. Is repentance essentially a violent thing? Or is it a gentle thing? Is repentance a harsh thing or is it a lovely thing? You see, part of what's tripping me up, maybe not you, but what trips me up is that I feel like repentance is a violent thing. And so when I hear Jesus say, repent, I hear him coming with a sword for my life to sever me from the things I love and want, and don't want to let go of, and my loss aversion kicks in, and I feel like Jesus is an adversary, violently raiding my life to take away the things I'm not so sure I'm ready to give up just yet, and that's how we feel about sin, and that's how we feel about repentance. We think that it's a combative thing, it's a violent thing, you see, but what if we're wrong? What if repentance isn't that at all? What if Jesus doesn't mean it that way at all? What if repentance is meant to be a gentle thing? So this, this week, um, <clears throat> I had the, the opportunity to do some communication training for some new InterVarsity staff from around, the, or relatively new InterVarsity staff from around the state of Florida. So they came here, <clears throat> and I got to listen to them give little talks and critique them, and I got to give them some pointers, uh, maybe on effective ways to communicate and that kind of thing. Don't judge me, okay? I'm not perfect, just don't go like, oh, he's an expert in communication, excuse me. <coughs> That's not, we're not, it's okay. But, you know, I can help them a little bit, so I, I'm giving them, I'm teaching them a little bit on homiletics and how to do this sort of thing, and, uh, and then they get to give these little talks, so these mini miniature 10-minute talks. Uh, and, you know, I've done this for years and years. I've done this, I mean, for almost 20 years I've taught preaching. And so I've had to sit through a lot of really terrible novice talks. I mean, it's, it's sometimes it's like poking your eyes out. It's so horrible. Uh, but you have to find something nice to say, and you have to find something constructive. You don't want to go overboard and so on. Uh, but these guys were actually quite good, turns out. They were actually quite good. So that was a pleasant surprise. That was... That was that was a play. A couple of them were, but I won't name any names. You know, <clears throat> uh, you know, it was actually quite pleasant. And uh, uh, I think it was, I think it was two people who we know who are possibly even in the room. Ryan Ramsey and Adriana did the same text. They didn't know that they were going to do the same text, but they 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 were looking both looking at Luke chapter ten. <clears throat> are you guys in the room? Is Ryan here? Okay, bummer. Is uh, Adri here? There she is. Look at her. Well, anyway, I thought this was fascinating because as they come to this text, 
uh, there's a line in there that said, where Jesus says, I'm sending you like lambs among wolves. Do you remember that line? I'm sending you like lambs among wolves. So Ryan, being a man's man and being a man, uh, when he sees that line, he, he starts talking about like this YouTube video he saw of like wolves attacking a deer and ripping them apart. And <laughs> that's, how he, that's how he comes at it. And, and I'm with him. I'm like, exactly. Yeah, wolves, man. Sent us out among wolves. This is a rough world we live in. <laughs> Danger and violence, you know. And I'm thinking, because he went first, he went first. So I'm thinking, yeah, that's it, that's it. You know, that's the, that's the key idea there. That's the key image. And then Adriana gets up. And she has her little, I don't know, winsome way. If you don't know Adriana. I'm not sure anyone doesn't like Adriana. I, I wish someone would just not like her just to see what it's like so she could experience <laughs> it once. So she could feel what the rest of us feel. Once in her life, you know what I mean? But uh, she gets up and she, she looks at the same line, but this, this was her view of it. This is her take, and this is what, what moves me, frankly. Uh, she asked this question. By reading it, she, she thought, God, what does it mean to be a lamb? How should We are lambs. That's what she heard in that line. We're lambs. And a lamb is a humble thing and a quiet thing and a gentle thing. And I just think, how is that, how does she see that? In this violent image, she finds some place of peace. You are lambs. You are not the wolves. And that's part of the identity that we're being given in that line. And yet I, all I hear is enmity, war, future bloodshed, conflict. And what she hears, and, and maybe in the end, I'm more of a wolf than I am a lamb. That's what's wrong with me. That's what I have to repent of. And maybe she's more of a lamb, and so she understands, oh, this is who we are. This is who we're supposed to be. This is what the passage is teaching, how to be a lamb. And I think we can, we can make the mistake of working through our Christian lives with a wolf's mentality, the way of the wolf, even as Christians. You know, men used to settle their disputes by dueling. You know, that was like a thing. Like, if you called me a name, I'm serious, I want you to really think about this for a second. This was like not that long ago, 19th <laughs> century. If you called me a name, if you called me a name, the right thing to do would be to call you out, to go outside, and to try to shoot you. <laughs> do you understand? Listen, if anybody thinks that men should be running the world, It's not, this is not about feminism. This is about empirical data for what men do when they, we've already given men the chance to run the world. This is what you've done. Let's give somebody else a shot. That's all I'm saying. Let's. Samuel Johnson said this, a man may shoot the man who invades his character 
as he may shoot him who attempts to break into his house. Andrew Jackson famously said, he, he's actually referring to a guy who was trying to stop dueling, who thought, you know, we ought to stop shooting each other just because we're offended by each other. And he says, look, the views of the earl are those of a Christian. He actually acknowledges this is a Christian point of view, to not shoot each other because we've offended each other. <laughs> he says, the views of, those of the earl are those of a Christian. But unless some mode is adopted to frown down by society the slanderer, who is worse than a murderer, all attempts to put down dueling will be in vain. Andrew Jackson himself, who became the President of the United States, was in 14 duels. 14 duels. Do not cross this guy. <laughs> he will try to shoot you. He will take you outside and try to shoot you. 14 duels. The President of the United States was in 14 duels. Not that long ago. Because someone insulted his honor. I want you to think about that. The implication that he is a sinner or a fool. The slanderer is worse, he says, than a murderer. And men, men, men are like this. We are like this. How dare you? You offended me. And maybe, maybe we're not interested anymore in shooting each other, but we will certainly come for you in the court of public opinion. And I can hear Jesus saying to Andrew Jackson, do you think their sins are somehow worse than your own? They are not. And I am quite sure that Andrew Jackson would have challenged Jesus to a duel. <laughs> How dare you, sir? I will have satisfaction. <laughs> Step outside. Not sure what Jesus' response that would have been. Okay, if you got to shoot me, shoot me. As absurd as that sounds, I wonder how many times I have challenged Jesus to a duel. How dare he call me a sinner? How dare he point out? How dare he question my honor or my integrity? And yet that's all he does. Whoever the worst person you can imagine, Jesus has always been saying, you're just like that. How do you think you're different than that? What's the Sermon on the Mount? Oh, you've heard it said, do not murder? I'm telling you, don't even hate someone. If you've ever hated someone, you're a murderer. You say, do not commit adultery. I'm saying if you've lusted after another person who is not your husband or your wife, you're guilty of adultery. Who does that? What kind of morality is that? It's a morality that is so pure, so holy, so, so other than the rest of us that it does not allow comparison. It refuses the option of comparison for us. It creates such a pristine morality that cannot be run away from through the method of comparison. We must always face our own depravity, our own waywardness, our own evil. It's extraordinary. But the way of the wolf is self-righteous comparison, judgment, and eventually even violence. Yes. We have all challenged Jesus to a duel because we see his call to repentance, his call to change as an act of violence against us. Um, guys, please hear me. If we see repentance that way, we will keep 
bowing up, keep standing up to him. And it's just, it is that absurd to do that. We are lambs. Or rather, we are wolves who have become lambs and have been sent back in among the wolves to convince them to drop the whole violent charade and become lambs too. Uh, whenever the worship team's ready, you can start coming up here, make your way up here. But it was uh, today is Skylar's birthday. That's my littlest one. He's nine today. You'd be happy to know I know his age. Uh, he's nine today. And it was actually this week also was Noah's birthday. So Noah's, um, I'm not sure if he's here. Is he here? No. Yeah. Hey, man. So we, we, I didn't have a lot of time. His, his birthday was Wednesday, and so we didn't have a lot of time. Uh, you know, maybe we could just grab a little time in the morning. So we went to breakfast, and then we, we went over to Bush Gardens because I had to be back at the hub for this training thing around noon. So I, we, we go over to Bush Gardens, and it's fun. It was just Monica and I and Noah, and we rode a few roller coasters and just enjoyed each other. But there's this moment where we were walking. Um, it, was, it was not very crowded, but we were walking, um, I don't know, past where the gorillas are or something, and into the, into the part of the zoo. And somehow we got kind of caught up in this group, this group of, of people that looked like they were on some kind of field trip. They looked, they seemed to me to be some kind of home or people with mental handicap, with mental disabilities. And so they were all just sort of very conscious of each other and their body and they were, and you can just tell these are people that are different. And next thing you know, we're sort of in this group of them. And there might be a couple of chaperones or something, but it's mostly, I don't know, maybe 10, 12 of these guys. And I, we just kind of got caught up in their group, and we weren't really getting away from them, so we just sort of walked with them. And then we come up to the lion's cage, the lion's display. And I don't remember, uh, in all the times I've been there, the lion sort of being out and so prominent, but he was just sitting right there, this full male lion was just sitting right there. He just looked like Aslan, you know, just kind of like his full mane, and he's just looking at everyone, just kind of like, come, on, come over and take a look. Come and, come and have audience with me, the great lion, whatever. <laughs> so we walk up, and as I walk up, this one of these guys walks up next to me. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes people with, with maybe a different mental point of view than us they, they don't have the same inhibitions. And so he just looks at me and starts talking to me. And this is what he said. He looked, he looked at the lion. I look at the lion. We're both looking at the lion. And I'm kind of like, yeah, it's cool. It's a lion. And he goes, beautiful. And I said, yeah. And he goes, pretty cool. And I could see, I don't know, in that brief encounter, not just him but others, but I could see in his eyes this, wonder, this appreciation for what we were both looking at. And it occurs to me, it occurred to me that he was seeing more than me, 
and I was jealous. In fact, as we walked away from the, from the display, I, I found myself, you know, Monica, Noah, and I, we just kind of kept going, and they were staying back, and I felt myself feeling like I was losing something, like I was sad to be parted from the group. I may have even said, like, I want to stay, I want to stay with them. But alas, I had to move on because my mind is always on a hundred other things where I'm going next, the training I have to do in two hours, the obligation of a dozen people, expectation on me that day, the pressures of a dozen deals that we're trying to work on. But my, my new friend was freer than me. And why can't I see what he sees? Because something is wrong with me. And something is right with him. I was so moved by this encounter, I went back and reread Jean Venet's book, Living Gently in a Violent World. And he says the mystery of people with disabilities is that, is that they long for authentic and loving relationships more than for power. And that's the difference. I, I had the briefest encounter with a human being that had no interest in power. And I felt dwarfed by him. I wanted to stay closer to them. In the same way, maybe like, a, I don't know, a tech person would want to spend some time with Steve Jobs or a business person would want to spend more time, some time with Warren Buffett because they're better than you, because they have what you want, because they're, they're who you want to be. But what did he have, this, this man? You know what he had? What he had was not wanting what other people have. <laughs> That's what he had neither knowing nor caring who Warren Buffett is. And I'm quite sure uh, in this one moment with this man that if Warren Buffett or Steve Jobs were to be standing right next to him, he would have said the same thing and he would not, not have taken his eyes off the lion. You could take a week and try to convince him that Steve Jobs was more interesting than that lion and you would not be able to do it. there's fruit on that tree that does not hang on mine. And this is what I realized in that one moment, accidentally included in this group of remarkable people, that repentance does not have to be a violent thing, but it can be a quiet, gentle thing. It does not have to be a fight, my friends. It can be a relief. It can be a relief. And let's just call it change this morning. It can be something that you welcome in your life, like life itself, like the air you breathe, something you fall into, like a feather bed or a cool swimming pool or the arms of your mother. Repentance can be like that, but it does mean letting go. And it is hard because we hold so tightly, so violently, onto these things 
because we hold our judgments and our comparisons and our insecurities and our fears so very tightly. They have become our closest friends, our unlucky charms. And it's not that they don't bear fruit. They do bear fruit, but that fruit is poisonous. And it is death itself. It is more of the same. And we can this morning, friends, let go of everything. Embracing a life of change, fruitfulness, and freedom from comparison of other people. And this is what I want to say to you this morning. This all leads to this moment right now. Is your life bearing fruit? Are there places that are barren or lifeless or sterile? I ask you to repent gently this morning. Are there things in your life you know are wrong, but you hold on to because they're yours? I ask you this morning to repent gently and let them go. Are there comparisons you make to justify yourself, to, be, to feel better about, about what you know is less than God's best for you? I ask you to repent gently this morning. I ask you to become a lamb, to let go of the way of the wolf of competition and comparison and judgment and fear and fruitlessness and bear the gentle, joyful fruit of the kingdom. And so if you will, bow your heads as we come to the table this morning. When John the Baptist, that fierce man, first encountered Jesus in the Jordan River, that, that moment where he was supposed to baptize him, he was overwhelmed by this one image Behold, he said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This one we follow was a lamb in a wolf's world. And he walked gently and he brought to us the fruit of the kingdom in his body and his blood. And on that night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. Eat it remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sin. Drink it in remembrance of me, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, broken, bleeding for you. I don't know what it is this morning, guys, that you need to let go of. I don't know what change God is pressing on your heart, but I know, I know there is something. As sure as I'm standing here, as sure as there is air in your lungs, there is some place where he is calling, whispering, gently, repent. Let it go. Let it go. And experience the relief. There is a better way, his way. And I'm urging you this morning, as we come to the table, as is our custom, as we come to the table, I want you to examine yourself. So, so even before you stand and come forward, to just ask God, what is that thing? And as you come and take these elements, it'd be, it would be an act of, of contrition even to say, I let go, I repent, and I take in its place this new thing, your body, your blood, your way. I become again a lamb instead of a wolf. So when you're ready, this is the body and blood of Jesus given for you.